I'm Jeff Hakeem, founder of MCM Wealth. Welcome to our podcast today. We do these podcasts to advise families, business owners, and health professionals. Our approach is to build customized portfolios for each client while offering comprehensive financial planning services. Thank you for joining us today on this educational journey designed to protect your future. Hello and welcome to the MCM podcast. Today we're talking about investment volatility and why it's important. I'm Wendy McConnell. Joining us today is Kirk Lowry, portfolio strategist at MCM and managing member of Advisable Wealth Engines. Welcome, Kirk, and thanks for being here. Hey, Wendy, I'm really glad to be here. Appreciate it. Well, we're excited to talk to you because we want to know right away, you tell us, what is volatility? Well, you know, it's funny. Volatility is one of those words that in the investment business we throw around all the time. But if you go out into the world and you ask people about volatility and and what do they think of it, or you say, for example, to a person, you have a volatile personality, it's never a compliment. (laughs) Or if you're a chemist and you say that, well, the chemicals are volatile, you know, you're going to run from the lab. Um, You know, so volatility is certainly something that reflects the unpredictability of things. And that unpredictability is generally viewed in a bad way. And, you know, for the reasons I mentioned, but when you think about it from an investment standpoint, from a statistician standpoint, volatility is simply that it's unpredictability. And you can have various measures of volatility, low volatility and high volatility. And we'll talk a little bit about what that really means as we go through it. But We want to reposition volatility from the common definition of something that's necessarily always bad to something that actually is important relative to how you manage your money and how that volatility can actually support your portfolio over time. So how do you measure volatility? Well, in investing, it's through a statistic called standard deviation which, you know, you get into the world that we live in and that sometimes gets so much in the way of what we're really trying to talk about, but it's fairly straightforward if you can get away from the the jargon. So what I like to focus on in the term standard deviation, Wendy, is the word deviation, because that's really what we're talking about. And it's that deviation from an average. So if you think of the word standard as being an average of something, It's really, what is the deviation from the average? And that's the measure that really reflects what we're trying to talk about in this regard. And and it is a number. It's different than volatile personalities or volatile chemicals, because it's actually a number relative to what the average is. And so because it's a number, we can really begin to understand it and think about it in different contexts, because anything that has a number allows us really to, to measure highs and lows and other things and relate numbers to one another. So that's usually a very helpful way for us to think about it in that context. As you were mentioning, the word volatility definitely has a negative connotation to it. But you're saying that it's not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to investing? 
You know, it's not. And I would even say if we define the term a little bit differently than it is to the common person or on the street, you know, think of volatility as something like stress. So stress, if you ask the typical person, generally will think about stress in a negative way because that's how it's often characterized. But in fact, stress can actually be very important to a person's growth you know, their maturity, our, our bones get stronger because of stress. And it's the same way in the context of a portfolio. Because volatility, if it is appropriately understood and managed, it actually can benefit the portfolio. It's only a negative to the portfolio when it's out of its place. And that's really what we focus on when we think about volatility and managing portfolios is to make sure that investments that have high volatility are in their right place and investments that have low volatility are in their right place. But in that context, we want to think about volatility much more in a benign or neutral way than you typically would find just asking someone on the street, let's say. So how do we get away from that negative stigma that the word has? Because it really does. It does have have a stigma. You know, partly I think the way I view this is that we we deal with volatility all the time in our life. And because standard deviation is a number, I often like to use sports analogies to help people understand where volatility is in our life, other than just the context of, of a person's volatile nature, let's say. And I think that that's that's helpful. And, and let, let me give you an example and, and why sports analogies are so useful, because so many things in sports are measured. Right. They're statistics. So people are very used to thinking about uh, statistics when they think about sports. And let's take basketball, for example. So let's say that you have two basketball players on a team and you're a couple games into the season. And both players are averaging 20 points. So that's pretty good. But when you dig into it, you find that against that average, one player is actually in their first game scored 40 points. In the second game scored zero. The other player, let's say, scored 21 points the first game and 19 points the second. And so you think about that. Well, they're both averaging 20 points, but they're very, very different players. So let me ask you a question, Wendy. Which is the better player to have on your team? I would think it would be the one that has 21 and 19. Well, yes. But in fact, the real answer depends on the context is you would like to have both on your team. Uh, well, that was a trick question. Kurt. It was a trick question, but you know, <laughs> just to add a little light to this. And, and the reason is this. Let's say in the third game. Your team has a lead and you want to protect that lead. And so you want players that are really dependable. So you're going to like that 20 point average score that's 21 and 19 because you can count on them. They're very consistent. Right. But let's say your team is down by 15 points in the fourth quarter and the first player can be really hot and score crazy. Well, at that time, you might actually put that player into the game to try to make up because they have the ability to score in bunches. 
And in many ways, that's how we want to think about a portfolio. Is that again, if, if you consider that volatility is neither good nor bad, as long as it's handled and placed in its proper role, then you can use both to the advantage. Well, I would have put the first player in during the fourth quarter to see if he was on his hot streak or not. I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> understood. Let's talk about volatility, though, and what it actually means for investing. Yeah, so so the first thing that we want to think about is that once we understand volatility as a statistical measure, let's say whether it's high volatility or low volatility relative to other investments, we can start placing it in its particular role. So let me give you an example, again, day to day. If you have bills coming up, then you want to make sure that the money to pay for those bills has low or zero volatility. Zero volatility is cash. So we know that when there's $100 in the bank and we have a bill that's $100, we know that when we write that check, the $100 will pay out at $100. And that's very important. So we need to make sure that in, let's say, the shorter term period, that when we need the money, we know that it's going to be there at its full value. And so we would want investments that have low volatility. We'll speak about that in our next podcast when we focus on horizon-based investing. But let's just set that the details of that aside for a moment. The other part about that is that let's say that I have $100 that I know I have to pay, but I don't have to pay for it in five years. Well, there's a lot that can happen in those five years. And I actually don't mind volatility in that $100 if I can get more money from that investment, if I can give it a longer time period to run. And so let's say that if I put it in there, it's going to have some growth periods and some loss periods because it's volatile, but the volatility actually increases for growth at a longer period of time. So if I have enough time to wait, that $100 might actually be worth $120 in five years. So I can pay my $100 bill or invoice, and I've got $20 left over. And that $20 might be really useful because I may not know it today what kinds of problems I may need where that $20 would come in handy five years from now. So that's why we want to make sure it's placed, that volatility is placed in the right role in a portfolio. So you don't want to do it with money that you're going to need right now. Yes, that's correct. For example, if I did that and that $100 that I put in and it was highly volatile and oops, we had a, a downturn in the marketplace and it was only worth $95, I've got a problem. Yeah, then we've got to go to dad or someone and say, yeah, right. oh, <laughs> get dad to, to, to fill in. Give me those five bucks. Yeah. Uh, what is compounding? How does compounding work with volatility? Well, it's really interesting because people have come to understand compounding really because of investing. I mean, sure, we went through it and understood it, you know, as we were going through school, but compounding is really focused in so many things these days in reflecting investing. And I think it's useful just to talk a little bit about what compounding means. And it's really the multiplication of results. So we think about a result, just like I was mentioning that we look at volatility as being a range or a set of results that has an average. 
and each result is a specific value to it. So if we take that and we look at those values and we multiply them together, two times two is equal to four, and four times two is equal to eight, and eight times two is equal to 16, that's essentially compounding. It's the exponential growth of the number two because we're multiplying those values together. And essentially in four steps, we've increased the value of two to 16 or eight times. And that's different than if we were to add them together, two plus two is equal to four, four plus two is equal to six, six plus two is equal to eight. And so compounding allows us when it's in our favor, when, when investments are increasing to essentially achieve much more than we otherwise would have had if we had simply the money in a checking account or in the proverbial mattress. The problem is that compounding when markets decline works against you. Just as it increases the value when markets are rising, it decreases the value exponentially when markets are falling. For example, let's say I have that $100 again and it loses 10% of its value. Well, now it's $90. So if you ask the average person, well, how much money do I need to get back to $100? And people will say, well, 10%. Well, it's not 10% because it's 10% not on now $100, but 10% on $90. That means I need to actually earn a little over 11% to get my money back from the $90, so I'm back to 100. The other way to look at this is, let's say my portfolio lost 50%, so that $100 is now worth $50. If I earn 50% on that $50, I get to 75. So I actually have to double my money, earn 100% on the $50 remaining to get back to $100. So compounding when markets decline is a terrible destruction of a portfolio. And that's why with volatility, if you have a highly volatile investment and it loses a lot of money, then that compounding effectively detracts from the value. So it goes then, the match is, if I can avoid losing dollars, then compounding when it's positive allows me to earn from a higher floor. So the math works for us by managing the volatility, by minimizing how many dollars I actually could lose. How does investment return work with volatility? Well, investment return is actually what we're measuring. It is that result. It's like Uh, Making a basket in basketball is two points. An investment return is what we're measuring. And so when you think about volatility, we're actually measuring what is the range of rising returns and falling returns. And then taking the average of that or compounding those returns to determine what our rate of return is. So effectively, what ends up happening is we're looking at the return as an individual number. And over 12 months in a year, we have 12 returns. Over five years, we have 60 monthly returns. And it's those 60 monthly returns that essentially we 
average and then take the standard deviation of that to determine what the volatility of those numbers are. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) How is the relationship between risk and return measured? Well, the risk and return is really a relationship. So we have return and then we have risk, which is volatility. And what you really want are investments that compensate you for the risk. So in other words, I'm willing to take on high volatility if in fact I'm earning enough on that that it allows me to grow at a faster rate than if I had something that had very low volatility. We see that, for example, in a savings account where it earns pennies, pennies. Now, there's low volatility, but I'm not earning any growth. So, you know, it's a measure and there are different ratios that we look at. One of them is called the sharp ratio. And the sharp ratio essentially looks at what is the return I'm getting for the risk that I'm taking. It's a way to say, am I getting compensated for the risk that I'm taking in return? And if I am, then I'm very happy taking on an investment that has higher volatility. What could be done to address this bad volatility in someone's portfolio? Well, a lot of it is structure. So if you know, for example, that you have a long enough period of time before you need the money, then you can put it into investments that have high volatility because over time, what ends up happening is that that investment actually has lower volatility over time. And the reason is this, we have bull markets and bear markets. Bull markets are rising markets and bear markets are falling markets. There's a structural issue that happens with bull markets. And that is that bull markets tend to last many years. You know, we had one here recently at 10 years plus, whereas bear markets can be as little as a couple of months, right? We saw this with the pandemic where from March to April, I thought, I think it was the markets lost 8%. I think it was maybe it's eight or 10%, something like that. But the point is that bear markets generally are very short. So if I have a long enough period of time, I may have lost money in a bear market, but the longer bull markets allow me to grow out of my losses as long as I don't sell. If I sell, I guarantee myself a loss. But if I'm willing and have the time to allow myself for my portfolio to run, then that growth essentially allows me to overcome those losses. That's not the case if I need to pay a bill next month. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Okay, there you go. All right. (laughs) So when should we as an investor worry about volatility and when should we not? Well, if you have an abundance of bills to pay in the short term, and you can find this at certain times in your life, for example, in retirement, and in later stages in retirement, where you have a lot of you know, medical bills and other things with that, and you can't afford it, and you really need to make sure that your money lasts. You can't afford it when you need to pay a big bill, let's say, for a medical procedure a deductible. And at that moment in time, your money has lost because every time we take that money out, 
Remember, as I said, if we sell because we have to during a loss, then all we've done is guaranteed our loss. So if I have a lot of bills, let's say one of your kids is getting ready to go to college and things like that, you don't want to risk the loss of that money. So we look at that from a planning context. We want to effectively align where your bills are expected to be paid and the volume or amount of those bills. And we start laying that in over a calendar, let's say, short-term, mid-term, and long-term. And as long as I know that I have enough resources, cash and investments to pay for those bills and I align them correctly, then I can put my investments with higher volatility in that longer term portion that I don't need the money. And I can feel really comfortable with money that I know I have for the next 12 months to pay all my bills. So whatever happens in the market, I'm not worried about it because I know the money's in the bank to do so. So can you predict volatility? Well, there's a lot of people that think they can, and a lot of people that are paid big bucks to do so. But I'm of the mind that you really can't. It doesn't mean you can't be informed, but you can't really predict volatility. And I like to use the example, Wendy, of, of a barrel of oil. So oil is the most studied commodity in the history of, of mankind. And there's no limits to the brain power, computing power, the data, and the motivation to understand where the price of oil is going. And yet, for example, when the Ukraine war began, there were people that were putting forecasts out there that the price of oil would skyrocket to $120, $150. They have good reason. They can make a very impassioned case, but they really didn't know. And here we are today with the price of oil at $72. Now, no one was predicting that, could not have seen that even six months ago. And so, you know, for that reason, we just don't know. It's the same problem with the Fed, the Federal Reserve. You know, they are struggling to try to forecast inflation. There's so many things that are outside of their control. Now, you can be informed and within boundaries work smartly, but the fact is you don't know. Because you don't know, you need to make sure that your portfolio has a cushion for that uncertainty. So how do you get that cushion in your portfolio? Well, you have investments that have high volatility, and as long as I have enough time, runway, another way to express that, then that added growth I get from those more volatile investments allows me to build that cushion. Remember when I said that $100 could grow to $120? Well, that $20 is a cushion that helps me manage what I can't see today. So that's why you want to have both we want to have investments that have both low volatility and high volatility in your portfolio because it allows you to anticipate things in the short term, but deal with the purchasing power risk that you have over the long term with things like inflation because you built in some growth in your portfolio for that cushion. So let me try to understand is once you have 
the money for the bills that you need, you want that in low volatility because you want to make sure that it's there. When it comes to higher volatility, you want to make sure that that's money you don't need until the future because if it does take a dip, you give it time to bounce back. Yes, you have the makings of a wealth advisor, Wendy. Congratulations. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what technologies are there to evaluate an investment's volatility? Well, <clears throat> computers help a lot. We have a history of all these return numbers, as I said, the monthly values, the daily values of a particular investment. And they can go back 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years. So that history informs us. And because we have that history, we can be very precise in calculating the historical volatility, the standard deviation. And it can inform us. And one of the things that technology allows us to do is that we can take that historical period and the statistics that are derived from it, and we can start to look at things such as persistence. How did an investment do in the last recession or the last bear market? Or how did a portfolio manager that's, for example, for a mutual fund, how did they do during different periods, for example, in rising interest rates and falling interest rates? And we can begin to see behaviors and disciplines. And in fact, generally, you want investments and portfolio managers that have discipline. It doesn't mean that we can predict things necessarily, or they can predict things. But we know that if they behave in predictable ways when events occur, then that helps us slot them more effectively in a portfolio. And technology allows us to do that. There are certain things that technology is supplemented with, for example, by talking to the portfolio manager and understanding their disciplines. That's called due diligence. But technology really allows us to do what's called scenario testing, as I just said. How did things do in rising markets and falling markets in the past, in inflationary periods and high employment periods, we can see how these things have worked so we can have a better predictive model for it. A little bit like looking back through history, you see how things have happened in the past. Yes, it's not that the causes of a recession are the same. Generally, they're not. But we know the results of what happens when recessions occur. And because we know the results, we can start aligning how an investment is managed or the investment characteristics, the statistics against those types of results. And it all comes down to tuning. It really is never set it and forget it, but it's set it, refine it with new information so we can keep things aligned as best we can for the purpose of making sure we have money when the bills come due. So one final question is, how does an investment structure impact its predictability? Well, there are certain investments that are by nature low volatility. For example, bonds, the classic proxy for low volatility. But you know, a lot of people know that, that bonds have low volatility, but a lot of people don't really understand why bonds have low volatility. And it's pretty basic. 
It's because a bond essentially is a contract. So if I borrow money from you, we have a contract and you will charge me interest with that. And that interest rate basically becomes my return. So as long as I pay you back every month, you get your interest rate, you get your return. And then at the end of the period of time, the bond or the loan ends, you know how much money you made because it's contractual. And like a lot of contracts, like mortgages, there's an asset behind it. It has some backup to it. So if I don't pay it, you know you can go get the money elsewhere by selling the home or the mortgage or whatever it is, right? So because it's a contractual payment, there's low volatility. So then you say, well, why do bonds have volatility? Well, bonds themselves don't have volatility. As long as you hold them to maturity, what happens though is in bond ETFs and bond mutual funds, you might have 100, 200, 1,000 bonds in there, and they're not held to maturity. They're traded. And they're traded. And when they're traded, what happens is they're impacted by where interest rates are today. So if I have a bond that, let's say, pays you 5%, but the market today, because of rising rates for a new bond, says 10% is the coupon, in order for you to buy that bond from me, I have to allow you to buy it at a lower price so that when it does mature, you're getting the 10% of a new bond that you could get today. And that happens in these portfolios because in mutual funds and ETS, their bonds are not held to maturity. They have to redeem. When anybody wants to take their money out of the mutual fund or the ETF, they have to redeem those bonds. And then they redeem those bonds in a rising market, rising interest rate market, they're going to take a loss because they have to sell the purchasers of those bonds at a lower price to compensate because they could get newer bonds at a higher rate. And that's why effectively we have this volatility and that's why we wanna make sure that we can manage it by understanding these relationships. And once we understand them, it all comes down again to making sure that each investment has the right purpose and the right role in the portfolio. Kirk, I'm exhausted. Okay, Wendy. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot of thinking. (laughs) A lot of thinking. I know. If you have to go back to all that eighth grade math stuff that we thought we could get away from, right? (laughs) Just just don't make me do fractions, okay? (laughs) Well, Kirk, thank you so much for joining us today. We do appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. Please like, follow, and share this podcast. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. This is Jeff Hakeem again. Thank you for listening to this episode of our MCM Wealth Podcast. Please click the follow button to be notified of new episodes as they become available. Also, please visit our website at www.mcmwealth.com or call me on my direct line at 415-299-6500. Seven four, so you and I can have an initial discussion. We look forward to learning about you.